Welcome to Exploring Hydrogen. Here we will learn about all the exciting advancements, opportunities and challenges of this nascent energy sector. We delve into how hydrogen can contribute to the decarbonisation of Australia and the world and investigate what it's going to take for adoption and into transportation, industry and society. I'm Andy Marsland. Welcome to our energising journey. My guest today is Andrew Clennett. Uh, Andrew is the co-founder and CEO of Haringa Energy, a company actively developing green hydrogen infrastructure across New Zealand and Australia, including one of the world's first nationwide green hydrogen refuelling networks in New Zealand. He has over 25 years experience in the energy sector. So a very warm welcome, Andrew. Thanks very much, Andy, and uh, pleasure to pleasure to be here on the podcast. So, um, yeah, very very interesting to uh, to sort of hopefully exchange some perspectives, I guess, of of what we're up to. Yeah, good stuff. And it was uh, I was just looking back; it was almost two years since you and I first met, and you kindly flew across to Australia to be part of the hydrogen panel discussion uh, that uh, Ryan and I put together. So, I'm sure a lot has uh, changed for Haringa in that in that time. Um, I guess getting straight into it then. So do you mind giving us an overview of uh, Haringa, the organisation? Yeah, yeah. So look, I guess Haringa is a pure hydrogen play, I guess is, is one way to look at us. We're a company that's very much a renewable uh, energy company, so a new energy company if you like, but we, our, our gig is hydrogen. In other words, our our tool is, is hydrogen. And we're, we're really been working for a number of years now, since sort of 2016, to develop the the hydrogen value chain to, to actually unlock it commercially. Um, commerciality of hydrogen is key to, to to let it unlock and start to roll out and decarbonise on scale. Um, it can decarbonise a number of areas, but we've been working the areas that we think make the most sense for now. Um, and that's around the likes of heavy transport, the likes of heavy industry, industrial feedstocks, these sort of things where hydrogen's used as a as a tool already, but or as a as a feedstock already, uh, but made from fossil fuels with associated emissions. So we've been working that we're based in New Zealand. Uh, we're working both in New Zealand and Australia and, and, and growing. Um, we're about uh, 23 people uh, now on the team. Um, really a mix, interesting mixed skills of sort of, um, we, we borrow heavily from a, an energy background and an oil and gas background because hydrogen being a gas and there's a lot of those skills around risk and safety and process and so on. Um, but also you need these clean tech skills as well. So we've got sort of... Um, strong sort of hygiene folks that have worked in hygiene specifically, um, finance, techno-economics. So again, we're trying to unlock commerciality. So it's really understanding how do you get that value chain working and, and, and partnerships. So com- a lot of commercials to really unlock meaningful partnerships. So that's that's the point. We've got a series of projects uh, where um reached final investment decision on on the uh, first, and then we have a second one also pending. Um, quite material projects, I guess. So they're, they're each sort of between 50 and $70 million projects uh, as the first tranche. So we kind of started a little bit bigger, not just a technology demonstration, um, starting very much that um, uh, coming out, creating a network, creating commercial scale projects to to really show that investable proposition and, 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 and accelerate that accelerate the uptake of, of hydrogen. Yes, yeah. And I remember in uh, when you and I first met, you spoke very much about the collaboration that was required to help um, develop this industry and, and making sure that the projects are, are commercial rather than just you know, pilot demonstration plants for, for their own, own sake. So uh, I think at that point, you just developed the heat map, as it were, of where the refueling stations were we're going to go in, and, and perhaps you can talk to the where you're up to with that. I understand the first four refueling stations have just started construction. Yeah, so we're we're doing a phased rollout, and and we've used a lot of sort of geospatial analyses, and sort of it's a data driven model. We say, hey, we've got a a network to roll out here. Let's make sure we optimise that, and we do it 
uh, efficiently from a capital point of view, from a use case point of view, making sure the stations are going where they need to be. And so the first four stations are currently under construction and, and they're focused to deliver higher capacity fueling to the heavy transport market, in particular the first round of um, vehicles are heavy trucks. And so these, there's also uh, 20 trucks coming in um, uh, from one supplier and working with a, 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 we're working with a lease partner on that for those trucks. And also other companies are bringing in some trucks as well to fuel off the network. And they're in sort of key locations. So from those four stations, we can actually achieve a huge coverage of say the North Island of New Zealand, all the main freight routes covered just in the first four stations. Um, and so it's leveraging that topography and geography, if you like, of New Zealand to really get that commercial model working. But it's a very repeatable model. So a lot of what we're doing is planning the next four, the next four, the next four, and sort of by 2026, thereabouts, we, we sort of think there's around 24, 25 stations uh, that we'll have up and running full coverage of the country and there'll be further infill and there'll be other stations as well but uh, it's really got that if you like that full-scale commercial uh, network happening and in the meantime we see well the model that we've come up with of the network is, is quite repeatable and how can we bring that similar approach to other markets and, and such as Australia and and further into Asia Pac. Yeah fantastic uh, so it's a uh very much scalable from what you're saying. And you mentioned about uh, high capacity fueling. Do you mind talking to that? So uh, how many trucks could you uh, refuel per day at each of the stations? How many kind of bowsers, as it were, or refueling hoses? And um, what um, volumes of, of hydrogen are going to be uh, coming through those refueling stations? Yeah, so they're all different answers <laughs> to <the> different <laughs> things. So um, the station, the, the, the capacity to deliver hydrogen into vehicles is is around, um, around 2,800 kilos a day of capacity, which is around, say, uh, 70 to 80 trucks or, you know, um, maybe 100 vehicles with, with buses coming into that as well. So pretty decent volumes. We're not producing all that hydrogen right now because um, we don't need it, you know, so, so it's about timing the production supply but the stations themselves can can pump that and, and the system's flexible so these stations it's back to back so i can go 24 7 and uh and do back to back fills um as we you know as we get those sort of numbers we can add it's very modular so we can add additional dispensers still feeding off the same core system so you know if we you might have a bus lane and a truck lane and so on um filling up and so on so but the idea is that these these stations can fill a truck or bus quickly you know so 10 to 15 minutes and oh, well. and and so and it's about that balance of how much investment do we do now and later and we think we've found a good good balance there with and the key thing is that high capacity station so that you can really if those if and as those trucks turn up we can really chase chase the fuels and make sure that those trucks get back on the road. Yeah, fantastic. And that's uh, extremely interesting. Some of the other organisations that uh, I've had discussions with over here have really felt those technical challenges to have that high capacity, to have the back-to-back -back, um, refuelling and making sure that the pressure is there between refuelling. So sounds like uh, you've worked through those engineering challenges. Yeah, so we've done, we did a lot of work with our um, vendors and partners about making sure we can deliver that sort of rate and and it's about being smart and fit for purpose with what we're we're putting in um, we do focus because we are focused on the heavy transport market we're not building a station that's all things for all 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 uses so it really is about delivering you know um truck fills and bus fills in a back-to-back -back way uh, again and again and again and um as a opposed to it's not for example at, at, at as the base system it's not a multi-pressure system it's it's it starts out just delivering at say the 350 bar it's absolutely upgradable for high pressures for light vehicles and so on but that's that's really an incremental case to do that um, again where hygiene hygiene needs scale and so focusing on the heavy transport has 
been key because heavy transport both builds scale from our side and then you know a small number of trucks is equivalent to you know hundreds and thousands of cars um so you know one truck is 150 cars the trucks that we've got coming in and so 10 or 15 trucks or something we can underpin uh, the full these full stations as as that sort of minimum minimum fleet and then that allows the that allows the a much easier um, target to achieve those sort of fleet numbers um, in that sort of business to business environment and and working that whole value chain with the with the the end users so it's a it's a different approach than trying to just demonstrate all the things that hydrogen fueling can be you know high pressure low pressure light vehicles heavy vehicles yes yeah and just to hammer home that point the the volumes of co2 which wouldn't go into the atmosphere on a truck versus car so it's the equivalent of a of one truck is equivalent of a, you say 150 cars off the road 150 cars yeah so yeah, it's well. equivalent every truck we get onto this network doing the kilometers that are that are paying for in this in this case it's it's in many cases over 150 cars equivalent so very impactful on the emission reduction front, and and also if you think about it, you know, 150 cars might you know, probably cost nine million dollars of of vehicles, you know, yep. nine million dollars worth of vehicles, and yep. and these trucks are in the sub, yeah, you know, sub million. They're sort of in a, they're they're more expensive than diesel trucks, but not not orders of magnitude at all. Uh, more expensive, they're they're sort of. Um, so effectively, and they're coming down every day. So it's it's a very good investment from a capital to uh, emission reduction standpoint. Yeah, great stuff. Aside from the heavy transportation sector, what other areas have you been uh, looking into or, or working on? Yeah, so a big part of it is that, and I think I mentioned earlier, is that uh, effectively the industrial feedstock side of things that it's a big existing market there are various uses so there's steel there's there's ammonia production there's methanol production um there's refining so on and so forth we've been working very closely in a, in a, a full joint venture with a, a partner here that's uh, balance agri-nutrients there we have a joint venture called kapuni um green hydrogen and, and it's what we're doing is we're actually installing some wind uh, generation, uh, co-located with the plant. They have New Zealand's only ammonia urea plant and um, and we're co-located with a wind farm uh, next, to, next to that plant and we are in fact taking that plant across to the renewable energy and what we do is we actually over We've installed, say, 24 megawatts, uh, 20, in fact, plus 25 megawatts will be installed um, of wind. Um, and the plant needs, we're, we're supplying around 4.3 megawatts to the plant in power. And so, in fact, that seems like a big overbuild, right? So 24, 25 megawatts installed for 4.3. It achieves about an 80, 85% capacity factor of the wind in that case running the um, running that plant uh, but also we have excess electricity obviously when the wind blows and so we then take that electricity and we run that through an electrolyzer we're installing a five megawatt electrolyzer and that also is available to produce hydrogen and that hydrogen can feed into the plant as hydrogen um, to make uh, green ammonia and then also, though, we can divert it to our transport market. So it's a, the two partners are each off-takers of that project. Uh, we can also off-take electrons to, to produce hydrogen in, other, um, in our other electrolyzers in our network as well. So we're kind of electron off-takers and molecule off-takers, both partners. It's a really good example of a joint venture. Um, and uh, so that's that's currently it's reached sort of conditional FID as well. Fantastic. That project, but we're we're going through the um, the consent process, so the the final step before pressing the button. And a, a really interesting thing about that project is it's 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 seen strong interest again. The the government stepped up in that project to provide a um, what we're looking to do is create commercial models. So 
in infrastructure and projects such as this, you'll tend to have a debt equity combination, so you have some gearing. The government in New Zealand sort of provided a mechanism to effectively pseudo create a, a gearing mechanism, so helping finance or help that's helping fund uh, together with the private sector. Um, but also by having those offtakes, we've achieved debt finance as well. So bank, banks are coming in and, and back in the project as well. So, and in a non-recourse form. So it's it's a very enabling project of, of one of the challenges has often been, there's many, many projects on the drawing board, but how do you get those projects to FID? How do you get them financed and funded and across the line and with a commercial lens being applied? And so, yeah, that's, that's one of the other achievements. And that's really a, if you like, it's a, it's a model of a where Hygen sits as is, is sort of a as a hub um, model integrated with existing industry, but using all its its flexibility. And because we can also, for example, turn off the electrolyzer and feed more electricity into the grid. All these sort of clever things. Yeah. So therefore, giving you a variety of uh, of options. Exactly, and that optimization, which is a, a very much one of I should mention, one of our founders is an energy trader, sort of a senior energy trader. Where we see, you know, that, that experience in trading electrons and molecules and understanding carbon trading and so on, that's crucial for this sort of technology to to really be able to peel that back and create the models and all the commercial arrangements through that. You can imagine there's, there's dozens and dozens of uh, of agreements in place, but it but it has effectively set out this this business model, and, and it's become fundable. One of the things I'd like to dig into a little bit more is that uh, one of the ways that uh, Haringa has been able to unlock that uh, commerciality and accelerate the transition to uh, zero carbon emission on the uh, downstream side, so the demand side, something I've spoken with a couple of times with previous guests is the moving away from the chicken or egg scenario. You need the supply of hydrogen to be there for the potential end users of hydrogen to, to get on board. And then on the flip side of that, you need the end users to be on board for projects to get the go ahead on, on the production, hydrogen production side. So perhaps um, if you can talk about the, the model that, that you've got with the trucks. Yeah, so I, mean, I think we, I think everyone saw that chicken and egg dilemma, um, have, have always seen that chicken and egg dilemma for hydrogen um, because, you know, well, first thing is you're up against 150 years of economy of scale in <laughs> hydrocarbons. As you can, but how do you, how do you compete head to head with that? But I think it's really, really, really important that understand it's it's actually the market that drives the opportunity. Yep, it's all very well to say I've got lots of energy and I'm 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 applying my skills of being really good at producing something. If you can't get that market activated, our first partner was a trucking company first partner as a company was a trucking company and so we needed to partner with people that knew the industry that we saw was going to make a lot of sense that's extended further and further and a lot of work to understand the trucks what's it going to take the impact of the trucks is so high so it was a very clear area to to crack because we could see line of sight to that commercial scale so we we learnt the game by by no means emulating a truck, what a trucking company does, but understand enough to to work with them and make sure that we're providing a solution that's affordable and fits their their operating model without too much change. So it's really understanding and listening to that market. And then you need to say, well, how can you wrap this? Because you can't, one of the classic ones is if you're going to get a truck, just buying one truck's a very expensive proposition for everyone for the manufacturer of the truck, for the operator of the truck, for the maintainer of the truck. You know, it's just got no economy of scale. So how do you create an economy of scale? Yes. And so we set about that and we partnered one of those early partnerships with with the leasing company. So TR Group, the biggest leasing rental company in New Zealand, one of the, I think, greater more than 10% of the trucking fleet uh, here in New Zealand, but also interesting and really good presence over in Australia. They are a classic aggregator, so they have um, they work with the market. We we parallel and and in partnership helped inform the market, the users, and and help work and understand what the trucks needed to be and and what the different constructs would be. And so, but started to get some scale and so getting to, for example, 
20 trucks and not one or two trucks as, as the start. And then how do we crack the chicken and egg? So these, these trucks come as a lease to the market and including our fuel. Yeah, known as a wet hire. Yeah, it's wet, so a wet lease model, wet hire model. And so that coming in has tied through to our investment in the infrastructure and we have an arrangement with, with our partner there, commercial arrangement with our partner there. We then jointly work with the sector to make sure that we have the stations in the right place, you know, that the uh, the trucks are working, etc. And look, in all of this, you still need to get whatever that, that wet lease model. It needs to be affordable, you know, it needs to still be an achievable cost for the end market. And that's taken a few things. And, and it's interestingly, in this case, the, the real difference has been, there's a few mechanisms in New Zealand that work for this and it's similar to what's happened in Switzerland is we have what's called a road user charge and the successive governments have have actually enabled a um, an exemption to that road user charge for effectively battery electric vehicles and to encourage the uptake of battery electric vehicles and it's actually a very material number in the whole scheme of things when you get to a bigger truck so it's not so material for a light car but for a big truck it can be sort of 50 up to 60 cents a kilometer so very material impact and so getting an exemption for that is key because that's helped offset some of the on the running costs the initial running costs of say the higher fuelers before we've scaled hydrogen it's still a higher price product we are absolutely as we scale bringing down the cost of the product but it's also very um it, it's going to level off down to the cost of a electron. So electricity is the biggest driver of the cost of the fuel. Yes. So that's made a difference by having the, the, the government provide that exemption. They've also, though, the cost of the trucks is expensive. So making sure that the, the trucks are affordable to make the commitment. And so the, the government's actually also stepped up on the truck purchase side. So, look, there's been a real role here for the for the government um it's a finite role so the models that we're establishing the lease models the infrastructure model which has got some equity investment from from ourselves and it does have some early loans again that loan model from the government but then the private sector stepping up into the loan into the loan side of things so it's around it's still commercial models but it's how do we address things like the increased cost of the trucks while they're early stage and they haven't had their production volumes up but it's a very finite problem that we've managed to crack here in new zealand and we're looking at how you know what are the equivalents that we can do in australia for example interestingly electricity is more expensive in new zealand so there's a little bit of offset available there so there's a few levers that we think that can be applied in the Australian model. Yes, yeah, and I think uh, if we're talking about decarbonisation, the percentage of your electricity network coming from renewables is quite a bit higher as well, isn't it, than uh, than Australia? Uh, it certainly is. It certainly is, but it's also um, it's not as deep. We tend to be more susceptible to high power prices if if it's a dry season or if we have inadequate wind at the time. So it's a very high renewables installed capacity but it's it doesn't have that depth to necessarily absorb as as easily so it does mean that electricity prices are higher but that's also one of the reasons why we uh, invest in, in our own renewables as well to as a hedge to to that market price because it's fundamentally i should really mention the most important driver of our business is being able to achieve the lowest cost hydrogen molecule by doing that and making that available to the market to help stimulate that market is key. So that that's our, our whole network, our whole mantra is about driving the cost of that hydrogen molecule down through all the smarts we can apply to it to make sure that that affordability can really start to compete with diesel. Yeah, fantastic. And do you think there's a business case for seasonal storage of hydrogen in, in New Zealand to, to level out some of those bumps, as you say, if there's a, a, a dry season? Certainly, in in a few ways, it's certainly a part. It, it's really a toolkit, isn't it? So, I think that the flexibility that hydrogen has that we are already applying in our network design is the ability to just 
shed that load and so effectively make that electricity available to the grid. So that, that I call that sort of a virtual battery, you know, virtual peaking. Um, and, and so we're geared from the start to do that. You know, we'll initially only have, you know, 13, 14 megawatts installed, but it's really, there's a good test of that, of that model. And we are scaling up quite substantially, sort of orders of magnitude more than that. So I think the virtual storage is the first step, which will happen by default and make quite a difference. The ability to then take it further, whether we're, you know, we're taking out taking off some of the ammonia that's produced from the project that we have, or whether it's direct hydrogen or storage to turn that around. I think that that has a part to play. Um, we are also already doing some some work with one of our partners that, that runs uh, diesel generators and in peak at peak times. And so can we, you know, can we in that peak time supply some hydrogen to help blend and reduce those emissions. So that's again a form of storage of hydrogen into power generation. But one of the important things is coming up with the models that really incentivize that. Um, you know, large volumes of hydrogen being produced and then sitting there waiting for a non-rainy day in our case is is a challenge. What are the commercial constructs that would encourage companies like us to do it. We're doing, as I was saying, we're doing these other methods by default. There's, there's, there's very aligned drivers for us all to do that. But the larger scale needs to be quite strategic and it needs, there's a few technology barriers in terms of large scale storage um, that need to be addressed. But again, ammonia is a really interesting one as well for that. And, and there's a lot of work as maybe we're going into ammonia firing into um, into turbines and into generators and so on as well, which is ammonia is an easier product to store. It does have its own challenges, of course, with toxicity and so on. So yeah, there is a plethora of solutions out there. I think it will be, it will have a part to play, but there's work to do to get us there. Yeah, just on, on ammonia, what are your views on ammonia for, well, firstly, powering sea vessels? And then secondly, for is that going to be the predominant medium to transport hydrogen overseas we think again it's it's a bit like there will not be one solution so we definitely see ammonia's got a big role to play here in the transition and to, and to net getting to net zero um i think and shipping is a classic area um but methanol will also have a part to play um so these greener fuels green methanol green ammonia um they'll be case by case, you know, the, the trade-offs will be there, but you will absolutely have multiple technologies. In terms of transport, similar thing, and it's got to do with, we, we've looked at this quite a bit, it's got to do with the different end-use cases uh, and the timing and the technology maturation. So ammonia's got a huge advantage. It's an, it's an existing market that, that's there, um, and it can also lend itself well to blending and so on. But it doesn't mean that you wouldn't also do pure hydrogen as well and or uh, methanol. So we, we actually think, again, like there's a multiple toolkits in transport, such as, you know, battery, electric, hydrogen, hydrogen fuel cell and hydrogen blended and biofuels. We also see that the for the transport of hydrogen, both domestically and internationally, there'll be multiple methods rather than just one dominant. Yeah, and for the benefit of the listeners, ammonia is... a uh, NH3, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So it's bond bonded with nitrogen? Yeah, so it's the key thing is, and that's it's a, it's a relatively easy process to synthesise ammonia from air and from hydrogen, and that's called the Haber-Bosch process. And so it's one of the first made large-scale industrial processes that was developed, and it's robust. It's relatively uh, simple to do, and so it does lend itself to a relatively easy to synthesize green molecule by taking green hydrogen plus nitrogen out of the air. An important thing is because that we need to remember though that managing the nitrogen in the in the cycle is also important because nitrous oxide, for example, is a greenhouse gas as well. So we it's around the use of the ammonia and how it's if it's combusted, how it's combusted, the temperatures and so on to try and avoid nitrous oxide. And so these other greenhouse gases being produced. So we need to be conscious that we focus heavily on carbon, but it's 
greenhouse gas emissions that we're really looking to avoid in the decarbonizer in, in what we call this, the net zero. So there's there's work to be done there, but there's some really good work that's happening and it does look very feasible to use ammonia in a number of these processes and avoid the emissions. What do you think are the, the reasons or can you point to any specifics on why New Zealand is, is more advanced than Australian and the majority of the other nations when it comes to decarbonising uh, transportation? I think Australia, uh, New Zealand, sorry, got going earlier. I got going early with uh, battery electric vehicles, again, with a high electricity, renewable electricity grid. And it's a very justifiable activity. And, and as the technology came on, so that got going. And interestingly, New Zealand has a, a used car market, imported used car market. And so that's enabled electric, plug-in electric vehicles to come in secondhand into the country, which has lowered the barrier to entry. So New Zealand's had electric vehicles and has achieved quite a high penetration, relatively high penetration of electric vehicles over the last decade. Hydrogen, we started looking at this, I remember starting to look at hydrogen in anger in New Zealand sort of 2014 and working with, we were approached by um, the Japanese to look at the, they'd started to think of hydrogen as post-Fukushima, a way to import renewable energy and so that conversation started but Quite quickly, we started to see that the environment in New Zealand was very good for cracking some of these models. So it, it's, it's then, if you like, the ecosystem that is there already in New Zealand does lend itself to to exploring these models. So we have been at it a longer time. Yep. There are other places that have been at it quite considerably longer. You know, so one of the first things we did was go and visit the Netherlands, the Orkney Islands, you know, Scotland, uh, the work that was going on in Aberdeen, Northern Europe. And California and seeing those ecosystems that are formed there, what are the lessons learned of that and how can that impact? How can we learn from that? What can we do slicker, quicker? How can we accelerate? So we, we did a lot of that and, and that's been the journey we've been on. One of the big things that Heisen still needed though is there is a hurdle and a barrier to overcome and so the role of government still is important. Traditionally, New Zealand doesn't have government intervention in establishment of industries and technologies and so on. So it, it stepped up first with the battery electric vehicle and, yeah. and things like I talked about, the um, the road user charge exemption, this sort of thing. And then we started, we're able to build the case for the, our projects as to where a role of government might be and, and other projects have started to look at that as well. But it's been very much on a case-by-case, business-case basis as opposed to where I think Australia is actually really accelerating now is all states have got an aligned strategy. The federal government has got a strategy aligned with that, including several bodies, CFC, ARENA, and so on, the CSIRO work. So while Australia's got going later, it's certainly accelerating and it's doing it very strategically. I think the challenge is there is a big resource base, industrial base that in Australia that there's needed to be a business case to change. And so I think that's come through in the discussion around what's happening up through Queensland, New South Wales with coal and so on. So it's taken longer, but it's going bigger. I do think though that where we've got to in New Zealand, yeah, we, we certainly are ahead and, and what we can do is implement these models quicker. Yes. Yep. So now that we've we've done the thinking, we can get it working. We can use the topography. We can use the network. We can use the way we work in business. The other big thing that is is different. Look, I'm originally Australian and and moved here in 2012 and moved here for a reason. And I saw how business worked here. It's a very nimble. It's a very nimble business environment. It creates and enables elegant business models, and those business models that rely heavily on partnerships is key. Is the nimbleness, is, is that something that comes out of the general culture of New Zealand and, and the way that businesses have, have operated traditionally? Or is have mechanisms come through in the advancement of hydrogen that uh, specifically need that nimbleness? I think it's the, probably the answer to the question is both. New Zealand by its nature has had to, both business right the way, through to when Māori were first here and having to, you know, in, a, in an environment, having to eke out a living, if you like, from the land through when, when Europeans came and settled again, businesses, New Zealand's always had to 
make the most of its resources. It doesn't have any one thing that's dominant in its resources. It has, but it has several resources that, when when used together, create true wealth for the country. And the only way you do that is if you bring your efforts together amongst companies and entities and bodies and so on. So, I think it, it is born out of the nature of of the country. Australia, on the other hand, if you take is it's a resource rich, pure resource rich play. You know, so very large scale. Scale is a key for Australia. LNG, um, coal mining, iron ore mining, all about big scale. And big scale is great. You look for a, uh, you get a linear efficiency when you do that. But also, it does actually breed a mentality that doesn't necessarily work for hydrogen straight away. You know, it's not all about super big. It might be about big enough to get it to work and work work together. So there's a difference, I think, coming out of the business models that have evolved out of what the, how the countries operate. So um, it's a definite nuance. But then we've taken, I guess, from hydrogen, because of that environment, we've been able to be a little bit more nimble and apply that. And, and it, that comes down to even just the networks the business networks and the government to business networks and the the, the cross industry cross sector networks that that exist in in New Zealand has allowed these models to form what would you like to see more of either from an industry perspective or policy changes as you Haringa continue to expand and, and looking at you know potential uh, projects over here yeah I, I think we need to crack the demand and um, we, we do that we work that heavily ourselves and so we've got a business model that we think can crack the demand but there is some leaning in to do from the end users from the government from ourselves from our trucking partners and so everyone needs to lean in a little bit so i think there's there's work to do on that i what we certainly see is the vision coming through from the state governments and the federal governments in australia is, is really exciting and so turning some of those visions into reality we very much look forward to being part of that. But fundamentally, one big shift that we've seen, I probably should go back to the previous question, one of the big shifts that we've seen is in the boardrooms in New Zealand and that drive to truly decarbonise and, and companies putting commitments on their 2030 timeframes. We've seen that start to emerge in Australia as well. In fact, many would argue that the businesses have been well ahead of government. Yep. On, on committing to emission reduction. Along may that, well, I don't want that time. I want everyone to commit to the emission reduction, but that driver from the boardrooms is is key because, as I just said before, we need everyone to lean in and we've got to recognise the same. We've had hundreds of years of economy of scale of hydrocarbons and diesel fuels and so on. It's, we can't expect this technology to just compete head-to-head unassisted with that from day one. But boy, we can scale quickly. And boy, we can achieve parity much, much quicker than if we were operating in 100 years ago. Yeah, good stuff. And you mentioned uh, a few moments ago that your journey, I guess, started in, in 2014, looking into into hydrogen. Taking a step back then, what led about that that journey? And maybe you just give uh, give the listeners sort of overview of your your background and, and career to this point and why you ended up starting Haringa? Yeah, I mean, interesting. I, I looked at hydrogen even before then and, and have always sort of picked it up and looked at it and put it down and picked up and looked at all the way back to when I was at university. Um, just seeing the potential of hydrogen was, was clear when you start to think lat- a little bit laterally in a, at a system level. But it just wasn't ready. And what, what I saw was... The first conversation started, as I was saying, in the early part of last decade when the cost of renewables had really started to drop, the acceleration of wind and solar dropping was, was very impressive and and that's a key input to the green hydrogen story. And then hydrogen, the technology had evolved enough, there'd been enough research, enough work going on in the background for the, the equipment to start to be commercially available. So that you could you could go and buy an electrolyzer and so on, but the costs were still high. But and the final thing is we needed the market. Hydrogen had a bit of a false start in light vehicles in the in the noughties under George Bush in in the US. He sort of backed hydrogen coming from from a you know, from Texas, I guess maybe related to the to brown hydrogen. But he backed he backed that, and then as we know the the, the Tesla type model and Obama backing the the um, electric vehicles. 
battery electric vehicles. So it sort of had a bit of a false start there. And the cost, and to be frank, the costs were too high. So then we needed a market pool that stimulated that. And that, that was what literally we started to see Japan doing and Korea doing, um, saying, well, hey, we're actually energy poor. And that started that export conversation. So we were following that and, and starting to see when could that all kick in. But I'd been, as myself, my background being oil and gas throughout, um, having gone through the, from oil more into gas over my career, so starting heavily in the oil space, well and truly ending up into the feeding the LNG beast. My, my last uh, job in Australia was, was with Woodside and being part of the developments there. And then coming over here, I took a very, it was an, an integrated oil and gas role, looking at, which was really integrating that value chain. The company, Todd Energy, really exciting company from gas fields, they had hydro, they had geothermal, wood and power to, sorry, gas to power and so on, and integrating that and really understand. So I, I was really excited by that, but I'd always thinking, well, these skills would be really, really good if we could crack this this uh, zero emission version of this, the hydrogen molecule. And so we, we started to see from 2014, getting involved more, looking more, looking at within that company, uh, and then they could say, well, are we going there? And it's very hard for the incumbents to, to pivot that really was at the time and I to me, I took a sabbatical <laughs> went over and, and uh, said well what, what's really going on went to the World Hygiene Con- Conference or Congress uh, back in, in Zaragoza in, in 2016 I think it was and really interesting hey they were I think there were even there was a huge conference and and there were maybe nine seven or eight or nine lines and a whole lot of research being talked about right down to, you know, the nanoscale and, and really incredible research. But there was, there was a commercial stream and there was like a plenary, you know, so political, regulatory, what are the factors, a strategic theme. And interestingly, those, they, the, the organizers were totally thrown because you could not get into the commercial stream and the plenaries, but there was, you know, <laughs> you, you could hear bats fly, you know, in the, in the, uh, <laughs> In the uh, research, and, and it's not to be at all. It's not to be at all um, making fun of the of the research. It's, it's been crucial. It's crucial that research to continue. But what had clearly happened was the dial had shifted. Yes, that conference was the turning point of hydrogen because suddenly the commercialization was now what it was all about. Not the demonstration and solving the technology challenges. It was how do we get commercialization happening? And so I saw that as that really spawned me to say, no, there is actually something here. And and so we decided, well, it's it's hard for the incumbents to do it. And look, if not ourselves, so my partner, Kathy, really strong background in tech commercialization, infrastructure, you know, built data centers for Bechtel, done uh, energy infrastructure as well, met a really capable hydrogen expert had been working projects, exciting projects in Canada, Dan, our CTO. And then and then for my time we had we had energy trading as well. One of our one of our good former colleagues from my, my time had energy trading skills. And so we started to say, hey, we could actually do this ourselves. And and if not us who, you know, we've got perfect environment, we've got the skill set to make this work. We've got the um, determination to make it work. And uh, and now's the time. So yeah, we started. So 2016 through 2017, I came full time. 2017, and um, and it's been continuous growth. The same with 20, I think 23 people, and we'll be plenty more shortly. And working with partners that are also coming more and more on board. So yeah, been a really exciting journey. A lot more to do, but uh, but pretty rewarding so far. Yeah, absolutely. And I understand that you were. Working as a team from your your home in a in a Silicon Valley esque <laughs> type of en- environment, that must have been pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, we we gradually overtook more and more of the rooms of the house, <laughs> um, including converting the garage. I think we topped out at sixteen people uh, coming to work every day at home. A teenage daughter's loving this space now, so we move. <laughs> 
So we moved into, we grew up and moved into premises. It was a little bit late, to be honest, but no, it's uh, really exciting. We, we're in, we're based at the uh, New Energy, together with Arake, which is the, a new energy development centre that the, the government's helped set up in the region. And uh, Elemental, one of the really exciting consultancy that's, that's shifting again from oil and gas into renewables. Um, and the idea is that, you know, it takes, it takes a, a village to crack some of these things and again goes back to that that nimbleness and what's the New Zealand way? The New Zealand way is actually to, to get in a room and knock this stuff out and then, and then go do it. Yeah, good stuff. Looking forward then, what, what are your aspirations for the organisation, say, for the next five years? Yeah, so so look, in the next five years, I think really we, we've got a lot of work to do here in New Zealand rolling out our, our network and feeding that network. So we've got a, a whole pipeline of, of really exciting developments, both industrial, commercial, and and for supplying to the refueling network, I've said sort of 24 stations by 2026. So there, there's sort of a core activity there that we'll refine, but those projects, those midstream and upstream projects are really exciting, even looking at feeding aviation, um, feeding marine and so on. So there's a growing New Zealand um, activity, New Zealand market. We are actually planning also uh, as part of that as we grow the domestic scale and capability, we're also looking at where does export come into it for ourselves and our partners. So there's sort of a quite a, a strong New Zealand growth story, but we are also, we've already started, again, I mentioned before, how can that model over the next uh, two, three years, how can we accelerate our business into Australia and help the decarbonisation of Australia? And, and particularly, again, repeating, you know, Leverage what you're good at. Yeah, we've we've worked hard on the network model. We've worked hard on the business models around that. So that's the obvious thing to to leverage and partnering, and that is key as well. So what do we bring? We bring in an, is a it's a partnering model, and so that's what we're we're working in Australia. So ambitiously, I think we we have a pretty full blown um, uh, vertical. Well, I like to say horizontal supply chain rather than rather than someone at the top, someone at the bottom. It's a horizontal supply chain in in New Zealand with deep penetration of hydrogen um, across primarily heavy transport, um, industrial hubs, and then some of these secondary secondary markets, and then a an established uh, refueling network. Which certainly would be our ambition in Australia, and then a series of, of similar sort of hub industrial projects certainly underway or in, in advanced planning. So that's uh, which is that repeat of the model, and we are with our partners looking further afield. Um, our investors are, are both invested. Investors tend to invest both in our projects and also in us, and we we look at how can we take these models to other parts of the world that that, that if you like fit the fit the similar similar approach that we that we've developed. Yeah, anywhere else outside New Zealand and Australia they can share at the moment. Well, we're looking throughout Asia. Uh, our partners are also looking at doing you know what are their role in North America. Certainly, we're looking through. South Asia and, and Southeast Asia. So there's a number of areas that we actually uh, are screening. Where can we, where can we provide the value that makes that makes sense? That that, that means it's a it's a Haringa play versus someone else play or Haringa and partner play. So that's that's the work we're doing at the moment. But we've also got to make sure that we deliver the core business and we are the most value to others with the knowledge that we build from succeeding in the project so you know we we're very conscious that I, I guess coming from a, an operating oil and gas background um, running overseeing developments and running operations and delivering the value to the business that's at the core of what we want to do and it's that model that, that that's needed we could just be pure developer play but it's the learning of actually executing, doing, operating, and growing the business that we see is vital. So we can't lose sight of delivering on delivering on the core business. Yeah, quality outputs. Yeah. yeah. Any final messages for the audience? Any other information that you'd like to share? Um, look, I think it's an interesting, really interesting piece for Australia to look at how can they how can Australia really become a leader in, in this sort of technology? I think there's so much opportunity to do it. But I also think that it needs to be approached a little bit in a bit more of a nuance. Um, scale isn't always 
you know, scale isn't always the best approach to start with. You, it's about how do you get to scale? How do you, how do you create those aligned partnerships? So I think it's really important, as I said before, think of it as a horizontal value chain, not a vertical value chain. It's not about I've got the energy, I want to sell it. It's about how do we get all those bits of the jigsaw working? And I think that does take a different form of thinking. I come from an oil and gas background. It sits, <laughs> the, sits at the top of a pyramid, if you like, but but I, 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 that is not the model. That is not yep. the model that will unlock this. And so I do... I do really encourage people to work together. It it is not. Uh, we need to avoid just a competitive scramble, um, as well, because that's we need to be able to leverage each other's skills. So um, there's a lot of scope. There's a lot of work to be done, and there's a lot of opportunity. Yes. So if you miss out on one thing, there's, there's 500 other things around the corner because we are really displacing diesel and, and fossil fuels. And so we need to get after that and, and work together to do it. Yeah, good stuff. Um, how can people follow what uh, Haringa's uh, doing? And are you open to connecting with uh, with organisations that want to partner with you in Australia? Yeah, no, very much so. So, I mean, good, good landing pieces is, is our website, which does have full contact, but also um, I'm, I'm very active on LinkedIn. The teams are very active on LinkedIn. And also from the websites and so on, you'll also see who we're partnering with. We, we within read there's some that, you know, there's some, some other projects that are, that are going on, but you'll certainly start to see who we're working with, the sort of companies that we work with. And by all means, yeah, reach out because we, we are very keen to find those aligned partners and really we do open book the way we work. We bring hopefully a continuity to that value chain and if you like we can help link it up but we also won't profess to be experts in every every part of it. That's why we need partners. And so, yeah, it's, it's people that want to learn and work with us. We, yeah, we love it. We love working with good, good people yeah. through several, several routes. Thanks so much for your time, Andrew. Uh, it's been uh, great to catch up with you, as, as always, and learn the progress that Haringa has been making so far and the uh, exciting journey that you guys have got ahead of you. And uh, hopefully we'll catch up in, in person sometime soon. So thanks once again, Andrew. To the listeners, I uh, hope you enjoyed the podcast. Um, if you did, please leave a five-star review and uh, don't forget to subscribe. Great. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks so much, Andy. And Thanks to all the listeners. I'm Andy Marsland. Hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks for joining us on the Hydrogen Journey. We welcome you to join us at our next episode. Please remember to subscribe and review the show and hope to see you next time. Bye.